Hello everybody and welcome to Bruvagoon. You will not get there on a road bike. How you doing people? I think that we all came out from a really really intense week. Mainly because of the protests and yeah, that happened in all over the world, mainly US after the murder of George Floyd together also with all the protests against another bad murder happened in US and is the one of Breonna Taylor's. Sorry, Breonna Taylor. Um, I would say that actually this was a lot of thinking week because this thing let me help as well on considering different things. Um, one is the inclusivity in the sport that we like, that is not as inclusive, at least in the high levels and the pro level, as it should be, because the representation of non-white people is not really a lot and that's something for sure cultural because people that are not white and middle class it's difficult for them to get into a sport that is it, even if it's a joy and everything it's really we all know bicycles since we are kids but it's a bit let's say it's expensive and it's not for everybody and it's also a cultural thing because not everybody is used to go in sports like this in order to have fun and stuff like this well, this made me consider reading a lot of things, of course, from the article of Barack Obama till all the statements of the industry of cycling and on the other side also all the initiatives of people inside of this sport and all my mates all there. Um, well, it was really, really a lot, of, uh, a lot of reflection. A great help and I have to say this thing with not so many problems of mentioning a brand. Um, a lot of good things were coming out as well from uh, Specialized and all the content that they are producing. They really like to empower uh, inclusivity for women, inclusivity floor for non-white people inside of these sports that we all love. So I'm going to put the description below. Uh, I'm going to put a link on their content that I like the most. And I really hope that you're going to enjoy that. Apart from that, there were so many statement, statements from the statement of focus bikes to um, about how in the US police use bicycles, their bicycles as a weapon against protests and oppression weapon. And this is also pretty interesting. And uh, all the other suppliers and everybody in the industries that actually put themselves on the field in order to change things from this point of view. Really, it's a good time to think about that. And it's a good time to take position and to act in order to make this sport and life in general a bit more inclusive with cultural stuff. And... I will be really, I don't know, into that in order to make it happen. And I hope that everybody of you will actually take the small part in order to improve the situation in this way. Anyways, huge big up and shout out to all the people out there that are protesting in order to change this thing. Things that you don't want to see in 2020. But unfortunately, we're here again. And there would be a lot of things that I can talk about, but this is a sport podcast if you want to hear my opinion just give me a shout you know where to find me sorry i really needed to make this small introduction from the episode of today now let's start again from for a couple of news and let's start the episode couple of news is that no let's start from the other point just remember that if you want 
everybody to listen to the podcast that I'm producing and hear the content out there. It's really, really helpful for me if you can share the episode that you like the most with everybody out there and everybody who is listening to that would be great if you can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, but now also you can subscribe on Spotify and Google Podcasts. This will really help me on producing some more of this content. You know, I'm an independent producer, but still having a bit more of people and followers will help me also starting making some interviews with people that are asking me all the time, okay, which one are your numbers? The more we are, the more content I can unlock. Two news I was saying. First of all, if you check, uh, I'm going to put here in the description below still uh, the link. I had an amazing talk with Lelan. Lelan is the organizer of Dirty Kansa. Everybody calls it the World Championship of Gravel Cycling, but he's a great guy and we really liked, li he really likes to talk about culture, about cycling and gravel, cycling and everything behind that. He made uh, this series that obviously now I don't remember the name, but if you can give me one name, one minute, I'm going to find it out. Gravel Exchange. If you ever look to Gravel Exchange in YouTube, anyways, the link is down below. Uh, you're gonna see that Lelan talked with a lot of great personalities of the gravel world around the world because he wanted to know a bit more about the culture of gravel and gravel cycling around the world. So he talked, for example, with Paul Arrington, my friend Paul Arrington, who is in charge now for organizing the Grinduro all over the world. He talked as well with Lawrence Tandam, Lachlan Morton, all these great personalities and was super humbled to also have a talk with him talking about the amazing community around gravel cycling in Italy. The description will host the link of it and you will see what was happening there and which one was my talk. It's more or less one hour talk, one hour video interview. Let me know what you think about that. It's super, super... I really, I'm really humbled that Lelan gave me the possibility of doing it. Really, really shout out to him. Second thing that I want to mention is that also last week an amazing artist, animator and illustrator made me a huge gift. His name is Little James Arnold on Instagram and he made an illustration of myself riding my open up trying to catch people with my microphone. So it's actually the absolute absence of my cycling world going out on gravel, bikes, and producing a podcast. You can see it on my Instagram account and also on the Instagram account of Little James Arnold. So, Calamaro CC is my Instagram, Little James Arnold is his handle. Go there, have a look, and if you like, give a huge, huge like and follow to James. It's really great. Let's talk about today. Today, I interviewed an, another amazing character of the ultra endurance world and the long distance cycling i'm talking about axel carrion who is a guy who is in the world book of records for three different adventure and is also the ideator and race director of the series called biking man well we talked a lot mostly about his experience also a bit more about his tips on bikes and stuff and it was a great great talk so, yeah, listen to that. I will talk to you later, huh? It's with uh, technology. 
Yeah, we are having some technology problems, but now it seems like it is recording and these kind of things all the times happen when you are interviewing somebody who is in the Guinness record. Probably it can be in the Guinness record book of silly recording and software problems, but it's not about me that we are talking today. We're going to talk today with somebody who explored the word probably almost in its all, its all length and uh, by bike, of course. I will talk today with Axel. But I don't know how to pronounce your surname, man. Can you do it for me? Hello, Stefano. It's uh, ca Carillon in French, which means uh, bell in English. Okay, Carillon is like the one that usually you have on your sleeping table and is super nice with an amazing music. Carillon. <laughs> exactly. Wow. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it seems like that's why your voice is so relaxing, man. I don't want to say that your voice is sleepy, but it's pretty calm, really relaxing. Seems like your spirit is really the spirit of a carry-on. Okay, sorry. This is probably an elementary school joke. Sorry, man. <laughs> no, no worries. I'm used to, to get that one. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Nothing really, I don't know, nothing really creative. So, man, how are you doing? You are, but you told me before that you are based in Cannes. Yes. Uh... Have you been riding a bit in this period? Uh, it's been quite complicated, like uh, most of us. Huh? I've been uh, mm. I've been riding outside for less than two weeks now because the lockdown policy in France is uh, now a bit more flexible. Mm -hmm. So yeah, smile is uh, is coming back at last. We can ride bikes not on a home trainer, and I'm super happy with it. Yeah, 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 it makes sense. How far are you from the mountains, dear? Yeah, that's the beauty of the Riviera. Uh, from Cannes, uh, we are. At let's say 25 minutes from amazing climbs uh, on the western side of where I'm living at Lesterel, the mountain ranch it's beautiful uh, red uh, rocky mountains mm -hmm. and on the eastern side you go to Nice with the Italian border and you get the Prealpe d'Azur uh, park where you get some pros that are training uh, on La Madone de Gorbio climbs called the Turini where I was uh, cycling last week and how is it man I was there a couple of times I'd never been to the Col de Turini and actually I think I thought uh, I talked with the guys of Café du Cycliste once and they told me that on top of the Col de Turini if you take a turn you're gonna find also a super small climb up in a gravel pavement I actually rode Turini on almost all faces because that's that's a very peculiar climb. It's mm -hmm. a beautiful one, mythical because of the the car rally, obviously. But it's it's also one of the very few climbs where you can climb from different part of the mountain to lead up to the pass, and you you can climb from I would say a mistake, but at least four wow. different roads. Mm -hmm. And last week I actually slept on La Madone de Gorbio. Uh, uh, I BV there and then early morning I went with a friend to ride the Turini Pass following a gravel road which was amazing it's really it's a serious climb but you can just climb up go down climb up from a, a different route it's it's lovely okay okay I have to put it in my bucket list because it seems like it's a goal that you have to accomplish you have to go there with your bike but you usually move with your a road bike right it's um it's a very long climb so if you take the longest version it's um, almost 25 kilometers mm. so um, on a gravel bike it takes even more even more time but it's a beautiful climb whether you take it on a road bike or a gravel one it's beautiful okay. especially if you go on top and after that in lotion 
which is um, there is a ski station called uh, Camp d'Argent. Okay. Open during winter and during summer, no snow, so you can ride a loop and go really just kissing the Italian border and come back, and it's beautiful, beautiful. Perfect, perfect. Now I really, hopefully they're going to open the border soon because that's something that I really would love to do. I'm going to bring my gravel bike there and then I can actually put there some slick tires maybe and do the both of the things. <laughs> and I'll meet you on top. Yeah, perfect. Anyways, I'm super slow, so I don't care if I have a slightly lighter or a slightly heavier bike. <laughs> <laughs> So Axel, so apart from this amazing shot, I think everybody understood already which one is the spirit of Axel. And yeah, you are, as I was saying, you are in the Guinness book, you are an explorer with a bike, you have done amazing adventure on your bike and still, and as well, you are the organizer of, yeah, a set of events, the Biking Man events. But probably instead of myself giving words on you, probably would be better if you can give us a small intro. So I will not take the risk of mistaking or giving wrong informations, as I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 35 years old, okay. so I'm, I'm already pretty old. And uh, Definitely, been... <laughs> definitely super old. <laughs> I'm actually a baby uh, in, the, in the passion of cycling because I... I discovered cycling late. Uh, I was a cycling retard because I, I discovered riding a bicycle and the pleasure of it in 2011. Okay. And the first time I went on a bicycle was riding more than 1,000 kilometers without stopping on a big randonneuse, a big touring bike loaded with a, a kitchen, a tent. Mm -hmm. And that was a life-changing experience that defined the way I'm, I'm now leading my life around bikes and around exploring the world with bikes since 2011 until now. And before riding bikes, uh, I had a second passion, uh, which is uh, energy. I'm, uh, I'm passionate about energy because I used to work in solar for seven years, okay. promoting that uh, beautiful energy. And um, yeah, it, it connected with a lot of dots and uh, especially on the kind of lifestyle that I want to pursue. Uh, of I don't know I don't like the world but uh, like eco-friendly and and being you know aware of the energy you're spending versus uh, the things you're giving and yeah that followed me up to cycling <laughs> that's yeah that's great that's great and then from there was everything this direction cycling and then it was doing ultra races actually doing ultra rides and organizing ultra races that's really amazing but let's jump back a little bit of this 2011 so i am also a really late discoverer of the bike because i started cycling in two not at your level of course but i started cycling in 2008 when i was already 27 before a little before 26 but yeah 26 27 and then everything was around bicycle from there on and for me the excuse was a bike packing trip in albania what about you what happened in this 2011 for you to let you discover the bike and for you to let jump into an randonneur bike fully loaded with stuff and riding for thousands of kilometers well it um the idea came from friends, a group of two friends that invited me to join uh, a bikepacking trip that they were planning in Slovakia, Ukraine, mm -hmm. Romania, and Moldavia. Mm -hmm. And 
they had an adventure, a similar adventure the year before in, in 2010. And for 2011, they told me, you need to join us. You need to come and experience that. And at that time, I just said yes, like without thinking. Yes, that's what I, I didn't. I didn't have any bikes. I, I didn't know anything about bikes. Uh, no panniers, no camping outside, uh, you know, cooking your own food and all that stuff related to bike touring and exploration. But I said yes. And I got slowly prepared well, in a couple of months, actually. Mm -hmm. Bought the bike, uh, bought the gear needed, uh, get too much stuff as, you know, most people I think are doing for their first adventures carrying a lot of uh, you know big shorts and five t-shirts and yeah. being super loaded but i just said yes to that adventure uh, without expecting anything from it just yeah saying yes and it actually took us 10 days to to ride that 1200 kilometer journey and um, riding from dawn till dusk and yeah, it was life-changing. I, I remember telling to one of my friends uh, when we were flying back, like, this was most likely the most beautiful holidays that I ever had. And I definitely want to, to try it again. Okay. And I went, when I came back from that, I actually bought my first road bike. Okay. Right after that trip, I, I was like, I need to try these very thin and small and light machines uh, to see why so many people are passionate about road cycling, and this is how the this is how I fell in love with bicycles. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense, actually. And which one was your first bike? So I mean, uh, the the randonner, super heavy, whatever bike. I bought a used version of a Koga World Traveler, uh -huh. and it was a lovely bike. It has an aluminium frame. Um, and the previous owner had uh, done some bike touring experiences, but nothing big. So I just bought it in a, in a, in a shop in Nice. And yeah, fully equipped. Uh, it was almost a 45-ish, 50 kilos bike, but it was brilliantly comfort comfortable. Okay, okay, yeah. That's the most important thing. And then your first, uh, which one was the first road, super light road bike? That... <laughs> it was a, a Focus Isalco. Okay. Focus ah, wow. Isalco Pro. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. You went for the uh, for the good one, huh? Straight away. Yeah, well, actually, I, I followed the advice of friends. Uh, whether it for the Koga, I was following the advice of one of my friends who was riding a Koga for, for years and who told me this kind of bike for touring, uh, you can tour around the world and people are cycling more than 100,000 kilometers with these bikes. So I love the fact that it was like super reliable because I, maybe I, <laughs> maybe I knew at that time that, that I would go very soon for the long haul and the long journey. And for the road bike, it was the advice of a friend who used to race for focus. Okay. Um, who at that time told me, you know, for the, for the, the value you get for the money, it's it's very good bikes. Uh, it's solid, and um, yeah, you can really go far, fast, and it's super reliable. So I just followed the advice of friends again. And now, how many bicycles do you have now? Now I have uh, two bikes. Oh, okay. I have, yeah. Now I, I'm not trying to get as much bikes as possible because in the end, uh, you end up doing things that I'm trying to fight of. You know, having thousands of of the same things. I'm I'm trying to rationalize i don't like the word but 
trying to rationalize my needs. And I have two two bikes, one gravel, but more like a roadie style, uh, an open uh, up. Ah, the same that I have here in my in my living room that I can that I use as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's I have the awesome open up as well. It's awesome. <laughs> it's so relaxed. Anyway, it's super fast. You can fit six fifty B, seven hundred C, whatever, and it's pretty comfortable. Yeah. So I have this configuration for road and triathlon, and uh, then I have a wide, an open wide. For... Ah, you have also the open wide. Okay. Yeah, for the when I go really off the beaten tracks and when I need to bring the tank. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question here. It's really a personal tip. People, if you're not interested, let me know. But I need really to ask this question to Axel. So I have at the moment a road bike, a proper road bike. is a 3T Strada and an open up. I have two things in mind for the future. One is get rid of the road bike and keep only the open so I can switch some, uh, I don't know, I can switch the wheel set and whatever and uh, use it both as road and as gravel. The other idea is to continue keep on the other side the Strada and substitute, let's say, the open up with an open wide so that I'm going to be on the road super fast and light and on the other side when i want to go off-road is going to be something capable of everything what do you think is the right solution how do you feel with having an open up for road and how do you feel going off-road with a wide i think it's a, it's a right combination uh, the problem is that open has made the the equation a bit more complex because they, they just announced that they are the you know, releasing a, like a, the mind the pure road bike yeah uh so to my perspective i'm I'm a huge fan of having you know the, the not the lightest but one of the most simple road machine and to be honest i'm i'm missing my focus you know this kind of machine where it was just rim brakes super light mechanical gear ratios and like very simple yeah because I still have my personal records on lots of climbs with this machine. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I'd say that the perfect the perfect combination would be, you know, a fast roadie that you just like to ride fast on some climbs and that you use, you know, only on good weather and you're carrying a lot this bike. Mm-hmm. And then versus that, uh, something like the wide where you can pretty much do whatever you want. Yes. Either going really, really off the beaten tracks and for that the wide... Uh, is incredible. Mm. If you want to put 650B up to 2.4 inches tires and keep, you know, a second wheel set for uh, road cycling with the wide, I think that's the that, that would be the best option. Having a fast roadie and a gravel an extreme gravel or yeah, yeah. everything off road. You okay. get lots of gravels that are gravel bikes that are not really gravel. Yeah. Meaning that you can't really go off the beaten tracks you can go just on on very packed fast gravel like the dirty concept for instance in mm-hmm. the us yeah but if you go up really you know on the rocky terrain and almost mountain bike terrain like you like you have in italy and, and france in the alps for instance that are rugged and rocky and, and and damaged you're happy to have big tire clearance and big tires and most gravel bikes are not allowing to put very large tires right yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'd rather opt for the option of being ready for the unpredictable and being ready for really the adventure and the extreme gravel. 
Yeah, okay, it makes sense. If you have any doubt, go for bigger tires. That's what you say. And then if you yeah. want to go on the road, then get something pretty stiff, like it is a road bike. Okay, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so you mentioned before that actually you have your bike that is set up for triathlon, but you go through all the adventures and your records and whatever. It seems like you're really into the let's say, the long-distance endurance racing, endurance cycling. How was it? So from your story that you just told us, you started with the bikepacking long rides. And from there, it was always like this? Or sometimes you're also doing triathlons, as you were saying, or smaller events. Which one is your, I would say, style of cycling, typology of cycling? Well, I, I would say exploration. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I like cycling as a whole. Okay, the triathlon bike is just for small espresso rides and espresso, uh, I would say, challenges. I, I actually love riding hard, super fast, okay. uh, like, like small or medium triathlon races where you need to ride as fast as possible and run as well and sw swim as well. As much as very long distance rides, uh, for me, they, there is not necessarily a border between the two. Okay. Because I love high intensity workout as much as you know riding fifteen hours and and having the mood swings and the roller coaster of emotions. Um, but the thing I love the most is clearly taking my bike to unknown places and and exploring. Whether it's bike touring with a super loaded bike or with a super fast ultralight bikepacking configuration. Yeah, 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 it makes sense. And actually, from what you're saying, comes naturally to move the direction of your records. So you have, you are in two uh, Guinness, you have two records. It's the crossing South America in 50 days, and then you have also the other record in Jordan, right? Or, or am I missing something? Uh, actually... I think there is a third. Yeah, I established actually three world records. The first one was riding South America in record time with a, with a fast bikepacking configuration, mm -hmm. 50 days. Then the Inca Trail, riding the, the, what's called um, the Peru Great Divide mm -hmm. mountain bike route. And then the Jordan Bike Trail. Okay. But I, I clearly went from, you know, very long distance journeys of let's say riding 200 days like I've done in 2015 crossing South America on a touring bike mm -hmm. I went from the bike touring super loaded configuration that have a lot a lot to say to the benefits of uh, you know and the joy of riding a bike to that extreme of ultralight bikepacking uh, racing and I, I and I tested the two actually in 2015 I crossed the entire South America in 200 days okay. with uh, 154,000 meters of elevation and crossing passes at 5,000 meters, Wow! Uh, being self-supported, carrying food and water for more than five days without a single soul around where you need to count as you know how much water you need for at least five days minimum to eat and be self-supported completely. That's the experience in 2015. But when I came back from that, this is where I actually signed up for TCR when I was doing that uh, bikepacking journey. And then in 2016, I started to, you know, test, try um, the ultralight bikepacking configuration. And in 2017, I came back to South America 
to attempt the same thing that I had done in 2015, but with a bikepacking ultralight configuration. And for me, it's uh, it's really two different kinds of explorations and two different kinds of racing uh, because you're all, always, I think, racing a bit uh, in what you're doing, whether you, you are push biking somewhere or, or bike packing somewhere. Uh, but it's just the pace that you're putting that is different. Mm-hmm. But the joys and, you know, the feelings you might uh, feel at that time are not to be opposed. They, they, they are complementary. Um, and you can love both worlds. And I love actually the two practices. <laughs> great, great. So um, let's start from South America then. Uh, how and why did it come into your mind to go and to and to go and to do all your adventure? And also you started organizing as well the Inca divide there and as well as other things. But why South America? Have you been there? You have an experience there? It was something that was into your mind since before. Why and how? Well, at that time, I was with a girl mm-hmm. who who dreamt of exploring South America backpacking. Okay. And at the time, I was starting to build that, you know, continental crossing. Um, we just crossed our dreams. She wanted to explore South America because she was, you know, attracted by the culture and, and the countries there. And I wanted to do a continental crossing. Okay. And when we investigated the locations... Uh, South America has something very peculiar. It has almost all the conditions you can think of in terms of weather, elevation, and riding experience on a, a small, <laughs> a rather small uh, distance. And when you compare the continents, I think it's it's really a mixture of not the best but almost the, the best of what a continent can offer in terms of variation and exploration. Because you can really go from sea level to 5,800 meters yeah. on a bike. You can go from 45 degrees in Colombia to minus 20 in Bolivia. Oh. You can go from tropical jungle in the coffee region of uh, Colombia and then face up the dryness of the Atacama Desert, which is the driest place on Earth. So it has this huge variations um, that I discovered there. And for me, it was a shock in 2015, really. Okay. It's, it's really a physical and mental shock that I felt there. And this is why I came back after that to build the Inca Divide. Inca Divide was at the origin, one of the most beautiful road segments that I had ridden in 2015. Okay. Wow. That's how I, I gave birth to Inca Divide. Okay, okay. I said, if I need to share that experience and of exploring South America and facing the conditions, meeting this, these amazing cultures that are living there, the people, the kindness, and all the, the, you know, the myths that are connected to the Inca and pre-Inca culture, mm-hmm. then Peru, another time Ecuador and Peru, should be the place where I should start. Okay, okay. And so you were mentioning for sure the environment, you were mentioning the people and the culture. What really, um, which one were the, were the moments and what really uh, are you bringing with you about this adventure in South America? And still you're continuing going there because you're organizing the Inca Divide, you're organizing the, the, um, your, the biking man in Brazil. 
So it seems like you have some at- attachment to to South America. Which one are your feelings when you're going there? Which one are the best moments you spend there? It's pretty hard to answer. Uh, I would say that uh, I would say two things. Yeah. The, in South America, I think the the number one country that one day needs to be explored by everyone who's passionate about cycling and exploring the world is definitely Peru. Okay. And if if you discuss with people that had the the opportunity and chance to explore this country, there is a moment before and there is a moment after. And it's like a small confrérie. It's like a small club of, yeah, you know, because you've been there. Okay. Because it's so wild. It's so difficult, but so rewarding in the end to explore this country for a lot of different reasons that it's really changing you. And that's definitely a place I would like to go before dying. Like literally, I would love to take back my bicycle in Peru and explore, whether it's fast or slow, this country. And the second thing for South America as a whole is the kindness of the people. Okay. Uh, when I was uh, riding in 2015 and as well in 2017, the I, I stayed almost 50 nights um being hosted by people, welcomed, especially wow. by the firemen. Because as soon as you ride a bicycle in South America, and I think we are a bit losing that spirit in Europe now, but in South America, it's really something valued. And you're, you're, it's like the, the people that are living there, the conditions, uh, you get a picture, uh, weather and terrain conditions that are very hard. The people that are living there are living a, a very hard life. And when you approach them with the bike, it's like they understand and they connect to the effort you're pushing in to go there and to meet them. And they are actually super happy to help and just happy to share their lifestyle, how they live. And you still feel, apart from that kindness, this way of life. Or not middle ages, because I don't like the world. It's like uh, you get lots of preconceived ideas when we, when we say that. But the before ultra technology world that we have now in Europe and in Western societies, you can still touch the old way of living, of people that know exactly what's the name of the, the village 10 kilometers from here. And they know all the families that are living in the neighborhood. But that's it. They don't, they don't know more. They don't know more villages around. And it's like they're connected. And, wow. and it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's giving a lot of um, insights and it's, it's changing. It, it changed the way I see the world because it's, uh, it's slowing you down a bit and giving you another perspective on how to lead your life. Because these people are happy, even though they don't have, as much as we do in uh, in Europe, and I think it's um, yeah, it's an experience that everyone should live uh, because it's beautiful. Yeah, also because usually you think about Peru and probably most of the people that have been to Peru, um, they go to the classic tourist touristic place, right? And uh, there probably all the people that are living there, they're still 
trying to attract the most of the tourists and get, I don't want to say take advantage, but, you know, get out the most of it because it's a good source of money, even if probably they're not going to take all of it because just the organization are taking it from the tourists and stuff. But probably you can leave, if you go in the touristic places, you're going to, I don't know, I'm thinking about, for example, Machu Picchu and all these places here. You are really not experience really the real place like it is and the real culture like it is but by exploring like you did going on the unpaved roads going on the road that are um, they are not beaten by all these people all these buses all this kind of structure here you are really experiencing the real life of the real people real farmers living at yeah. four thousand five thousand meters of altitude De definitely it's um you know and you gotta think about the magnitude of these countries there i mean peru it's a, it's a country uh, it's more than 3,000 kilometers long. Wow. And people, when we talk about Machu Picchu, it's like saying for France, yeah, I've been to France, I've been to Paris. Yes, yes, definitely. But from Paris to St. Petersburg, it's the same country. So it's a huge, huge country and very, very poorly known, especially for cycling. And the, the Andes, the mountain range, apart from being the youngest mountain range in the world, it's also the longest one. So you get countless, countless trails, tracks, and bikepacking adventures that are unlimited. And it's a, it's a, there is something special about South America in the sense that everything was built by uh, by men and women there. You know the trails. It's it's. Um, Men built countries, not petrol built countries. Oh, okay. Which means you can connect easily villages from walking distances. Because at the time of the Incas, they were connecting Colombia to Chile at the you know at the height of the Inca Empire, just by walking, because they didn't have any cars, any wheels, nothing. Yeah. So it's um it's a paradise for bikepacking for that, for that perspective because it means you have refuel options and culture, men and women, that you can meet en route every 20 kilometers. Wow. Um, let's talk about mountains one second. And let's talk about, yeah, uh, Peruvian Andes. So let's talk about the mountains there in Peru. What's the difference? So you are spending most of the time, if you're going there bikepacking, you're spending most of the time at... An altitude that is pretty high for us Europeans, right? But <laughs> and you have, anyways, um, some experience yourself of different passes, different climbs, different mountains around the world. How are they so special? One thing I think you mentioned right now already, and you said that all the villages at high altitude are at walking distance. There is there are tracks that are made by human for human or for their animals, of course, but they're not made for cars, they're not made for trucks, and they're not made for big, uh, let's say, vehicles with engines. What else? How are they beautiful? Let us dream a bit, telling us about bikepacking on this altitude in South America and in Peru especially. Well, there is, uh, <laughs> there is something that I love above all. It's altitude. Yeah. And... I mean, South America, and especially Peru and Bolivia, they have the highest passes on Earth. If you search for the highest routes on Earth, uh, one of the highest is Bolivia. 
and I happened to have the chance to to ride my gravel bike at 5,800 meters on a road. Like, um, uh, like there, you can drive a car. And I believe that the passion that we have for mountains, for hiking, I believe that the same passion can be pursued for cycling. Okay. And for, and for now, it's, it's not known because, you know, the, the spectrum of cycling was mostly focused in Europe. And gravel bikes, mountain bikes that are really allowing to go off the beaten tracks for a long time, carry stuff and everything, is really not something new, but it's really unlocking a lot of opportunities to go high and take risks. I mean, in the early 20th century, uh, riding a bike at almost 6,000 meters uh, would be very, very dangerous because you had to carry, I don't know, maybe 100 kilos of equipment. Yeah. Now it's, it's something in reach because of the improvements of the equipment. And it's really something spiritual about uh, riding a bike. If you love, for instance, climbing mountains by bike, the altitude factor it's really the ice on the cake. Okay. If you haven't ridden your bike at super high altitude, it's like saying you hiked a mountain at 1,000 meters, but you've never been hiking at 5,500 meters or 6,000 meters. It's turning that whole experience of pushing watts to a complete mystical survival experience. It's really hard to explain with words, but it's... Um, there is a moment before and there is a moment after. Okay. But that's, it's like a threshold you reach. Once you go riding at high altitude, you never come back from that. <laughs> I can feel completely the point. So. And it's something you'll be you know, trying to pursue um, because of the feeling you have and um, yeah, the, the sensation and what you see on top, obviously, because the reward of, uh, of riding super high passes on top, you get mind-blowing landscapes and uh, superb uh, scenery so i've been at high passes and the diet altitude just for the first time properly once obviously for the first time in my life it was last august when i was in kyrgyzstan for the silk road mountain race and yeah. uh, the first climb that you do you go from the 800 i think seven eight hundred meters of bishkek to the kegeti pass that is above four thousand and i was i was with the car i was not with the bike unfortunately these have so many pros and cons, of course, but it's true that really the starting from a city where in August you have 40 degrees and arriving at 4,000 meters snowing and seeing people riding the bicycle there under the snow and having a look to everything that is up there from lakes, you know, alpine lakes at 4,000 meters altitude and seeing in these countries how the vegetation and the, the trees are different from Europe because there you have, I don't know, trees, for example, that you would find here in Europe at 1,000 meters there, you have it at 2,500. And all these yeah. kind of things, different animals, different things or whatever, this really changed your mind. And uh, I remember clearly once we were at uh, Isikul Lake, I remember, and we were at 3,000 meters altitude and we started playing football with kids. 
And then you can really understand <laughs> that it's a different field, you know? The bowl seems like it's heavy, like it's, if there is, I don't know, water inside. And then you make a small street, a sprint, and you cannot breathe anymore. Of course, you can acclimatize, but still it's a different game. And I think that opens a lot your your feasible capabilities and also your mental parts, because I can understand how different it is to ride a bicycle up there. I think this is probably, riding at high altitude is probably the toughest thing that I've ever done on a bike. Okay. Especially with the Bolivian ride, um, where above 5,400 meters, it's really really starting to be dangerous but super hard as well on the body because uh, to describe the experience it's like the the brain is turning off every lights mm. one by one okay to keep the only one working which would be your heart pumping blood mm -hmm. so it turns the riding experience where normally you're focused on your on your cadence on your power on your heart rate it turns that experience into a survival one, but into meditation as well. Because it, it feels like all your senses, sight, taste, how you hear and everything, are turned off slowly okay. to make sure that the body can survive and overcome the challenge. So the reward of managing to, attempt, to, to, to reach the climb has nothing uh, to be linked with the, a regular climb that you do in the Alps, for instance. Mm -hmm. Tell us more. So it's dangerous, but it's really bringing something, something more and something special and, yeah, something close from meditation. But you get to you know, you go there. And uh, to my perspective, it's really starting uh, like above 4,000 meters and up to 5,000 meters, there is li like literally very few risks if you acclimatize properly. Mm. Um, but that's something to be tested. It's really something interesting. Yeah, also because it differs, so it's different from body to body, from person to person, from attitude to attitude. Yeah. You don't know how it's going to hit you, how hard, how soft. Or... And I think what, what you've done in Kyrgyzstan is harder, because I, I've done this as well in Peru with the Inky Divide. Okay. Driving a car from a low level to super high altitude quickly yeah. is more dangerous for the body than riding your bike. Because when you ride your bike, you can actually, the, first it's slower and you can acclimatize on the way. And I was actually feeling sick driving the car in Peru when I, when I never felt sick riding my bike in Peru. Okay, yeah, because it takes more time and also the body It takes more time, you breathe, exactly. so you produce red cells and you get acclimatized on the on, on route. When you're driving, you're just boom, projected at uh, four thousand meters, and you come from sea level. Yeah, this is uh, this is dangerous and hard, way yeah. harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were talking about the expedition in Bolivia. Uh, let's the, tell us a bit more about it. It was the climbing at uh, how is the name of the of the volcano Uturunku. 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 Yeah. It's just, almost just the name meters. is magical. Exactly. <laughs> All this use. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but it was this uh, volcano at more or less 6,000 meters altitude. Tell us more about yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's a twin volcano. And uh, what oh. happened is that when, when I crossed South America uh, in 2015 and 2017, I never had the opportunity to go there. Okay. And basically, when I came back in 2018, 
to organize the second edition of Inky Divide, I took some days after uh, the race to go to Bolivia and attend that ride. So we spent some time uh, acclimatizing in the north of Bolivia and then went back to the southwest and attempt the climb to, to that volcano. So it's a twin volcano that stands at uh, 6,000 meters. It's actually one of the, um, described as one of the easiest hike on oh. Earth. Um, if you if you hike the volcano, but for riding a bicycle, that's one of the highest paths on the readable route, and you get a picture <laughs> mind mind blowing landscapes. I, I got a story on the on the blog of Biking Man on this called unbelievable, because it's the landscapes there are just it's impossible to describe. You need to go there, check the story, and check the pictures because I actually rode there and I brought a drone in my bikepacking bags and I, I actually climbed the, the pass. So you got to picture two huge mountains. The pass is at 5,800 and the top of the two volcanoes are standing at 6,000 meters. Okay. And you can see the zigzags of the hike. So I, wow. I just dropped my gravel bike and hiked with my cycling shoes on top of the volcano to actually get the view on top and try to take the drone shot and actually almost crashed the drone there because of the the altitude because the drone was couldn't stand to fly at 6000 meters <laughs> damn it okay okay i'm checking it right now the blog article is going to anyways it's going to be down in the description below but i can't really wait to that, to check the photo that you are mentioning it's great wow and it's you know it's just a ride of 30 30 kilometers you know the climb itself is three zero 30 kilometers wow so in, in 30 kilometers which is not long for a ride no you learn so much there's so much experience to be learned in such a short ride and that's what i love about exploring it's not just about the distance it's really up to the conditions you put yourself into and the experience you can get from you know the tools that you're using the memories that you'll dig into and what you learn from the field that are then helping you in your daily life you know it's like um it's like locks for me it's uh, it's something that i'm building like a treasure and all these challenges and all these expeditions are treasures that are helping me afterwards to be happier in life because I, when I'm in trouble, when I'm in a stress situation, I just think about that ride. And I'm like, you know, it's nothing compared to being in Bolivia with uh, minus 20 at 6,000 meters. <laughs> and uh, there's nothing to be worried about. And yeah, it's, it's a good way to build up mental strength and, and share that as well. Uh, in races, you know, not just big distances, because I love to learn a lot in in 50k stretches. And sometimes, well, what I've seen and experienced in the past doing super long distance rides is that you don't, you can learn more in 30k than in 4,000 kilometers riding 350 kilometers on an average in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just because of the conditions you'll meet en route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it depends on the density of things that you can explore and see and exactly get to know inside of it, right? 
I really, I'm really fascinating about your stories here because, anyways, you look at your resume, I would say, and you see you have made the record here. So we were mentioning the different records and stuff. But from your words, it seems like you are also trying to absorb as much as you can from the rides that you are getting. So really taking your time, exploring the places, trying to understand, trying to get the best photos, trying to get the best experience of yourself. How do you combine it? You know, it's a it's a good uh, image that you shared. For me, it feels like riding a bike. You're basically having your heart rate pumping twice as much as a normal human being, right? Most of the time, your heart is at 110, maybe 120, or maybe 150 heart, heartbeats. So you're actually using that muscle two or three times more than a normal person, right? The same happens with oxygen. And what I believe is that the time you spend doing that, it should be dedicated to exploring beautiful places and meeting amazing people and not spending time crossing highways and, and doing you know, stupid stuff that are not relevant because you, have, you don't have much time. And I believe that you, that's my motto. I mean, every time I go somewhere, I try yeah, to, to soak uh, as much experience as I can, knowing that I might not be able to come back there knowing that it might be the last time that I'm riding there, knowing that I have the privilege of yeah, cycling in Bolivia. It's a privilege. I know lots of people won't be able to do that. So I need to bring back memories, not just for me, just trying to ride, share, and inspire people to do likewise, not necessarily go to Bolivia, but to explore these kind of uh, adventures that are helping to lead a different kind of life afterwards. Because if you love doing this, that's going to change the way you you live your life on a daily yeah. basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. Something like spending time on things that value, even if it's not going somewhere far or going somewhere that where nobody have been there or whatever, just going to find something that it's worth it for you and explore a place maybe close by your place, maybe your backyard, but that you never see and that probably you can also share with people in order to, to inspire people. And that's great. Yeah, I, I think it's, a, you know, it, for me, it took me a while to, to understand uh, what I was searching for in these kind of adventures. But there is one thing that was connecting all these adventures, it was beauty. Yeah. You know, the, the, the beautiful landscapes. So landscape-wise, but the humanity as well, the people you meet en route. But I'm sure that 100% that you can get these kind of adventures maybe in your backyards or in your neighborhood or in your region. It's just the, the approach of it that uh, for me, it needed uh, to go very far and uh, in very remote areas to understand that. But it's sure that it changed completely the way I'm, I'm looking at my own region now or the 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 friendships that I have and the contact that I have in my own region. It seems like then you are mixing exactly the same spirit that you're carrying around and that you are sharing with everybody, not only with your bike adventures, but as well with the biking man. How did it come up together? How did you decide at a certain point that the world of ultra cycling or the bicycle exploration needed, how would you call it, a bike championships or I don't know, something like this, something like putting together different races and make a classification out of it. How did it come out? 
<laughs> I think that the serious name would be the the unsupported bike race world championship. Okay, <laughs> that's the serious word for the press. Wow, but uh, it, it's rather you know building a unique community of people that are happy to explore the world and be together. Okay, and do something crazy. I felt the need of building you know, a series of events. When I saw, um, when I built the first bike man event, so in Kidivide, that there was this, you know, a bit of a competition between the event organizers of trying to build the toughest race uh, on earth. I remember, you know, reading this about the Silk Route, for instance, for, from Nelson. That's the toughest bike race. Yeah. And when, when I understood that in 2017, organizing these kind of races, you know, that are super long, super hard, with ridiculous elevation, I also understood that it was just for a very limited number of people. And that it would only be dedicated for a super limited number of people. And my mission for Biking Man is to share that experience of exploration, fast bikepacking, ultra-distance riding, whatever name you give it to it, to the widest range of people and to, you know, non-cyclists as well. So I went from building in Divide in 2017 to a series of events from 2018 onwards who has gathered now more than 700 participants and most of them are first timers. Okay. So, so I think it's slowly turning that ambition into, you know, a reality of gathering amazing people that are, that are not judging each other's because this guy has raised this race, this woman has done this world record, blah, blah, blah. And it's just an ego competition, but it's rather like, like, well, this woman has this experience. This man has this experience in his job. And all these people have different tools that justify their presence here. Okay. And just for that, that's going to be an amazing event. Mm-hmm. Well, because I... the community created, it's mm-hmm. more about racing against each other. It's a race against yourself. Of course. Yeah. And then you get, you get people that are reunited to share the same goal racing against yourself and meeting cool people and that's what biking man is and it's just happening several times a year <laughs> yeah that's that's an amazing thing because actually you're not sharing only one race so something like taking part to one race but you can take part to many of those some of those are also in europe and uh, yeah you have the possibility of following a track and exploring a place but with inside of an organization and also with other people because i think also the social part is pretty important in these kind of races i think it's um you know it's it's most of the race actually mm-hmm. you know 10 percent of the people in the biking man series are actually trying to win yeah all the others are there to survive the event are there to survive the experience and learn from it they have a they have a sports connection maybe they are you know they've been walking when they were kids Maybe they've been doing roller, um, I don't know, hiking. They all have a link with sports, but no, not necessarily, you know, a huge background and a serious background in cycling. And they are just happy to attempt something that is seen as crazy, like riding across the desert of Oman, exploring the jungle of Laos, riding across the highest pass of Taiwan, and so there's a mixture of racing against yourself 
but discovering as well new cultures with a different approach, which is the bicycle. And turning, it's not a tour, because the time limit of the events makes sure that you need to ride your bike day and night. You can rest on, on the side of the route, you can rest in hotel, but you still need to ride your bike all day. So eventually you'll meet these conditions. Eventually you'll have these people on the road that you'll meet and you'll get that experience that I want to share of learning from that experience and getting better at life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell you that actually I've been part of a couple of those racing, not as a racer, of course, I'm not tough enough. Um, but I think that this is exactly a culture that is sharing around, as you were saying, 10%, even less, I would say probably 5% of the people are there competing yeah. for winning. All the yeah. others are just there to experience something that they will never experience in their life. With, of course, the extra sparkle of having a time limit and something to compete against themselves. And uh, that's beautiful because you're right. Otherwise, if you're putting everything together, if you're just putting together a bunch of people just competing to win or whatever, it's just going to be another competition like it is right now. And then you're going to find the extra technology, the extra power, the extra thing just to win. If you're putting just together people that want to experience something like you do, like I can see, for example, also in SRMR or Atlas Monterrey, so I mean, being usually following the, the mid-pack people. And these are all people like this, just there outside to enjoy the best tea, the perfect tea, the perfect hospitality, the good food, and all this kind of thing. Of course, it's not a journey. It's not that you are going to go there just to relax. You need to ride. You need to ride hard. But then you're going to go back home with a full backpack of experience and a lot of stories to tell. Yeah, and I, I think there's something still missing a lot in uh, ultra-distance riding is that, yes, it's very hard. Yes. This is very hard. Yes, this is very dangerous. Um, yes, there are a lot of risks doing this. But what I love the most is the, are the stories from the people, what they learn from that. Because, you know, apart from soaking and getting the experience and consuming in brackets, like uh, what you see, what you eat, I love to hear the stories of the people that are participating and what they learn from it. Because most of the time, they come with one idea in mind. Mm -hmm which is potentially finishing a race, an event, so reaching the finish line, covering X amount of kilometers. And in the end, what they get from the experience has nothing to be linked with this. They might, after that, change jobs, change wives, change men, uh, change from uh, the lifestyle they had. They are making big changes because they learn exactly during these experiences what they love to do the most. And that's what I like to, to you know, meet and experience during the Bikeman as race organizer. It's, I see these people that are coming back because we have a lot of people coming back from an event to another. So we see these same people, women and men, evolving <laughs> and making the changes that they were talking about in Oman when we meet, we, met, we meet them at the end of the season. Like, you remember that? I've done it. Or you remember that, that uh, journey, that expedition, that trip, that dream that I had? I just dared to do it. <laughs> yeah. So that's amazing. I mean, it's, you know, what else can you expect as a race organizer? Apart from, you know, I, I finished in 10 days, 14 hours and 25 minutes. No, of course it's not. It's not about it's, that. This is sports. 
adventure is different. It's you, and that's the explore and do and power of Viking Man. It's not branding for commercial bullshit. That's exactly the stages of where we're trying to make the athletes experience. You know, you explore. It's hard, so you endure, but it empowers you. You, you then afterwards you change something in your in your life, yeah. and you get better eventually at life. <laughs> as simple as that. Yeah. I was scrolling actually on uh, your website, on the website of the Biking Man. Um, there are some pictures of participants, of people, whatever. And obviously, I spotted my friend Fabian Burri, the is here from Switzerland. <laughs> he took part to how, it, I think it takes part now to any of the ultra endurance races out there. And he took part to six of yours. Yeah, <laughs> Fabian is uh, <laughs> he's a legend. <laughs> it's, yeah. he's, been, he's been part of the Biking Man since 2018. And uh, yeah, he's, he's the the typical the typical man that you're just happy to see again on an event because he's just sharing so much energy of being happy to be there and reunited with people that he knows and new people. It's just amazing to see him racing again and again and again. And you're like, why? You're still there. <laughs> <laughs> why not? <laughs> you're coming back to the same events. Why? It's like, you know, it's just because I loved it. I love the experience. I love the country. And yeah, I'm just happy to be there and meet new people. So he's, he's really representing a, a beautiful face of, of the community, uh, which is the community of uh, ultra distance racing. Because he's still pushing hard, you know. It's, it's, it, you can look at the picture and you're like, yeah, this guy's, you know, it's like some kind of gypsy cyclist and he's not serious. But, you know, put him on the bike and try to follow him. He's a super strong guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And suddenly it turns like, wow, this guy is serious. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's trying to live the dream of, you know, racing, working, racing, working, and yeah, soaking as much experiences as possible to. Yeah, get the maximum at living. <laughs> great, that's great. So they are. So you are making uh, this year was supposed to be happening in six different races, right? There was Oman, Brazil, the Inca Divide, Corsica, Portugal. I'm missing one. Laos. Uh, Laos, exactly. So six of them, and there are many. Then you mentioned before that there was Taiwan before and other races. How do you scout for the trucks? Are you scouting them with a the car? Are you scouting them with your bike? Are you letting somebody else of the organization, you split the task and somebody else is scouting for the ride? How does it happen? So that's my favorite part, Stefano. <laughs> because obviously I'm riding my bike. <laughs> okay. But I'm going to come back to the beginning of our, our discussion. All the locations are based on connections with people. Okay. For instance, Taiwan came up because of a participant of Inca Divide First Edition. Okay. Portugal came up because Didier, one of my business partners, used to live there. Laos as well, because his son is living there. Peru is because of my passion of the location. So it's always with a connection of someone who tells us, you know, you need to investigate that place, that country, because it has something special in terms of uh, exploring it with a bike. And then what we do with Didier, who's the head of logistics, and if you if you come up one day to a biking man, you'll you'll recognize him immediately. And Fabian could tell you about him. He's just always smiling. He's just the guy. Uh, you can be you know anywhere in the world in the most troublesome situation. You'll be always smiling. That's Didier. 
is the logistic guy of Viking Man. And then there is David who's taking the pictures and working on the website and making sure that the, you know, everything looks perfect. He's, uh, he's the, the perfectionist, as we say in French. He likes beautiful things and he likes to share beautiful shots, pictures and stuff. So we basically what we do when we scout, I never scout a route by car. Never. Because I've seen this in race organizers and I think it's, it's very bad to do that. Scouting route just by driving an SUV, you can't really feel the challenges and be accurate in providing a minimum of a safety net for people that have no clue about how it feels to ride in a man. What are the dangers of riding a bicycle in Peru? Unless you put your bum on, a, on the saddle and you actually go there and you ride all day. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing is I'm riding all day and most of the time, a long part of the night, especially in Laos during the recce, to feel the ingredients of the route so that we can design the best routes. That's the first objective, like really the most epic ones where we see the best, we can meet people. And all these ingredients, I'm you know, riding the bike to, to feel exactly what will be the experience for the participants. And we just try to share with all the events. It's not just the, the copy of one event to another. It's really impossible to say Portugal is equal to Oman. Oman is equal to Corsica. All the events have something very special and ingredients that will stay in your mind forever if you ride these routes. Whether it's related to the terrain, whether it's related to the gradients of the climbs, whether it's related to the culture that you'll have to chat with just to buy a Coke, there are ingredients that will be apart and above all your cycling experience, something to be learned from. It's not just about the distance. It's not just about the elevation. It's about the experience and what you will learn and see and experience when you're on the bike out there. And trust me, when you're across the jungle in Laos with an 18% incline climb, and it's the 57 climbs of the day, wow. and you hear noises you've never heard about before. You hear elephants screaming, and you're like, what the hell, where am I? And you see flowers that are bigger than your bike. Trust me, you learn something. And then you, there's a Lao guy driving an SUV telling you there are ghosts in the forest where you're heading to. Trust me, it's changing really the way you really you think about bikes before <laughs> and after. <laughs> oh gosh, okay, okay. And how do you follow these races then? If you are scouting the trucks with the bike, are you following the races with the SUVs or you are in the control car or are yeah. you in the headquarters? So I'm, I'm scouting by bike, but then during the race, I'm not fast enough to follow the crazies. They are too fast. So I'm, I'm then, yeah, we have a different number of cars and a limited number of cars to follow the top leaders, the mid-pack and the, the last ones to ensure that we have some kind of belt and that we can go almost to anyone at any time to check if anything goes wrong. And if we, you know, can take as well some nice pictures of someone crossing the jungle, like Julie in Taiwan, <laughs> being scared by the noises and the snakes she sees, you know, it's it's memories as well for the athlete that we bring back, because then we we share the pictures and they're like, yeah, I remember exactly that feeling <laughs> on that jungle section. Yes, I remember. <laughs> 
damn it it sounds really wow amazing really really amazing um do you feel actually that you have a particular track a particular country a particular race that you are most attached to 100% Peru uh, you know it's that's the hardest race to organize because it's you know it's far it's expensive to go there it's really you know it's a country of a lifetime uh, it's normally you go there once in your life but it's i i had the chance and i had been lucky enough to ride my bike oof, almost five times there i crossed the country five times now by bicycle and it's really it's a place where 100% I want to take bike, my bike there to ride at least one last time. But how did it happen, actually? When you go there for the Inca Divide, do you have the possibility to go there a couple? Of... So you told me that you have done it when you went to Bolivia as well. But do you have time to go there before or go there after? Maybe to scout some new routes or to ride a bit the bike? Do you have this time? I, you know, it, 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 it takes a lot of time to you know, to fly to Peru and acclimatize and everything. So, yeah, I'm always bringing the bike and seizing the opportunity to, you know, not insult the country <laughs> because you're flying there and you're, you know, spending a lot, of, a lot of energy to go there. So I need to bring my bike and spend at least, I don't know, several days riding hundreds of kilometers or maybe thousands, it depends. But last year I had the opportunity to ride the, the Inca Trail for 16 days before the Inca Divide. And wow, this... <laughs> I was there with Jonas Deichmann, uh, a German adventurer. And, and I remember him saying, when we reached Kunokocha in Peru, we were at the, you know, at the finish of the Inca Trail. And we were one day before the start of Inca Divide. Oh, wow. So we were late. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it was like, you know, that, that's the most ridiculous ride I've ever done in my entire life. Meaning the most beautiful one. And the guy had ridden, you know, he had crossed almost all continents apart from, uh, apart from Australia. He established world records everywhere. And he was like, you know, in less than 16 days, I've seen the most ridiculous thing that I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's true. I mean, it's Peru is just, incredible because of the magnitude because of the altitude you, know, you gotta go there at least once in your life and experience it <laughs> yes 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 i have my girlfriend telling me this kind of thing all the time because last time she went there by herself because i was working and i could not go and she's continued telling me we have to go there together we have to go there together well if we're going there together i will be sure to bring a bicycle with me it's very hard it's very demanding i can understand but Everyone I've, uh, I've known about, and I have friends who toured at the same time when I was touring South America in 2015, when I was back in 2017 again, and I have actually one blog uh, in France where I shared my journey in 2015, you know, with a lot of insights about how to tour South America. I think it's one of the most popular blogs now in France. If you want to explore on a bike South America and you're French, you'll end up on my blog. And, and every time, actually, I organize in Kidivide, I stop into a bike touring guy or a woman saying, you know, we discuss. And eventually, she, she or he told me about the blog. <laughs> and literally, there is a moment before and there is a moment after that place. 
because of the all the ingredients that you have there landscape culture scenery magnitude from the desert to snow-capped mountains and the people the the you know the incas and all the myths that are still living i mean it's uh it's, it's still people living with the influence of uh, their ancestors. It's very powerful. And when you understand how they live, it's really a, a beautiful lesson of life and survival because they still keep, uh, you know, this ancient way of living, which could feel like Middle Ages for Western people, but they're happy with it. And they're waking about 5 a.m. to grow potato fields at 4,800 meters when you, where you can barely breathe. Yeah. yeah yeah so it's it's, uh, it's it's an incredible lesson of life yeah it's special it's definitely special i want to ask you just last the last question axel and actually i want to ask you this question because i was digging a bit into your informations and uh, your pages and stuff and it popped out that you are also an ambassador supporter of pompier sans from sans frontier yeah tell me more about your attachment with fire brigades and firemen well it's again the story of my life it's a connection with people mm -hmm. when i toured south america in 2015 i i slept pff, countless countless nights at uh, firemen stations the mm -hmm. cuerpos de bomberos mm -hmm. and i was welcomed all the time by the firemen with an incredible welcome because they you know they, they left us sleeping in their in their quarters they allowed us to use the bathrooms and they always helped for knowing the route ahead, for instance, because at that time, you know, I didn't know anything about the route. So when I came back from that journey, I was like, you know, these guys that we've met and these women, it's incredible how helpful they are for the community because they are all volunteers. They are just doing it for free, trying to help the community. And I need to do something for them just to send them backwards. And I happened to hear about Pompiers Sans Frontières, Bomberos Sin Fronteras, thanks to a friend who went to South America following my blog, oh, a couple, a okay. woman and man. So I got in touch with them when they came back from South America and they, they introduced, because the guy was a fireman, and he introduced me to the owner of the NPO, of Pompiers Sans Frontières, Serge Montesino. And that guy fell in love with South America in 1991. And this is when and where I started in Peru after a bus accident. In 1991, this is when and where I started to get the idea of creating Pompiers Sans Frontières to support the firemen of South America and then firemen around the world because of what he had experienced of the country there and because he, he thought that they needed help, support to just give equipment between uh, quarters, between firemen stations from you know Western societies, Europe, America, because in South America, firemen, as I told you, are volunteers and they are using the equipment most of the time that is given. So all the equipment from Europe and America. So you have, you know, these big trucks coming from America and these very old uh, fire suits that are coming from Europe that are given. And the, the, the major goal and objective of Pompiers Sans Frontières, the NPO, is to be the link between the quarters that are in need of equipment and the donators. And for me, my role is just to speak about Pompiers Sans Frontières and share that experience so that the, no, the, the name gets, get, uh, gets to be known by people 
and eventually let people feel the need to uh, provide support, whether it's in kind, in cash, whatever you can do. I think firemen are always people that need to be helped for what they're doing. And there is no place in the world, apart from South America, where you can actually learn how desperate they are to be helped in terms of equipment because they, you know, they're doing everything. They're uh, working on fires. They are doing police stuff, ambulance stuff. You know, they, they, they do almost everything. It's firemen, but they are actually doing almost everything. And it's just uh, men and women from the people. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful people that need to be helped. And if uh, I can support the NPO by just, yeah, putting their names out there and making their initiative known, then I'm happy. Well, it's super, super interesting, super fascinating. I didn't know about that. And I can completely understand how you can really attach to this kind of uh, yeah people that are risking their life just as volunteers and without the right equipment and all the equipment and all the strength that they can have in the territory is only by donation that other people are giving them. So it's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, at the same time, they are very connected to the values of cycling. You know, nature, exploration, efforts, sports, um, you know, helping others. They are very connected to that. And if you take your bike in South America, it's crazy to arrive in the in a fireman station because they are they are always super excited to to see crazy people from Europe, US, and all around the world exploring their continent because they are proud and at the same time they want to help all the time yeah yeah definitely Axel it was a great pleasure I think that we could have stayed here to talk forever and ever because still <laughs> we didn't touch base on your Jordan adventure and you're arriving with your bike at Petra but for all these things and for all this information and all your pictures for sure there are social media then biking man website i'm gonna put all the description down below and the only thing that i can tell you is continue going on exploring and going on sharing your adventure and your experience with the same spirit that you have done it here today because it's really really great and whenever you want to jump over again in this podcast and talk again about another adventure or another thing just give me a shout you are always more than welcome as the same wow. thing if you want to ride the bicycle <laughs> here in switzerland you're more than welcome at my place <laughs> Hopefully, finger crossed. Huh? Thank you, Stefano. I hope that uh, depending on what the lockdown issue uh, will come up with, because we don't know what uh, tomorrow's world will be, but it's going to be different for sure. Yeah. So I'll be happy. I mean, the more than happy. It's uh, another opportunity to discuss again after future adventures. An opportunity to have a, a long chat. And usually I speak better in the bicycle, on a bicycle than in front of a microphone, I can tell you. When I'm not pushing too much, but I never push so much, so you need to slow down with me. <laughs> I'm slow. Okay. I'm slow. Yes, of course. <laughs> I'm just not stopping. That's it. <laughs> I don't sleep. I don't know. That's something that Sofia knows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cool, Axel. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for the conversation, Stefano. Cheers. Cycling in Peru. That's probably something that I had to put on my bucket list, apart from cycling in Corsica and go to Col de Turini. Let's see what's happening later this year, because Col de Turini probably is the, yeah, the easiest thing that I can accomplish in this year, because yeah, it's since 2014, 2013 that I want to do it, and uh, I think I really should. Thanks a lot, Axel, for the great inspiration that you all gave us 
that you gave us all better uh, on about your bicycle adventure and stuff. And hopefully we're gonna see meet each other soon. And we're gonna ride together the bike and see what's gonna what's gonna happen and what can make out of that. To you people, thanks a lot for listening to me as well today. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review and share this episode, mostly on Apple Podcasts, but do the same also on Spotify. It's pumping up a lot Spotify in this period. Super happy for that and I like Monopolize. And what else? Thanks a lot, Open, as usual, for supporting me in this episode, sorry, in this season. Well... I'll talk to you next week, I would say, right?